Um, we are going to start off here like we're going to do every Saturday morning. Um, one of the things you need to do when you first come in the door is you need to uh, check your name off on the on the list. You need to grab one of the packets of um, you know stuff that you pick up when you come in because that's what you'll take notes on. That's where your homework is. And um, then you just need to get food and drink. And you can get up and do that at any time during the, the meeting, right? This is family style. This is just like at home when you're hungry. You don't have to wait for somebody to tell you you can get up and go do something. You just get up and go do it, okay? And uh, I think you'll be all set here. So well, here's what we're going to do as we get started. I want you to take your notebook. I want you to turn it over on the back because we want to walk through the build disciplines again. These are the things that we're trying to focus our lives on together. We want to become disciplined in these things, and we always start with the heart. The heart is not a piece of you. It's not a portion of you. Uh, It is you. It is inwardly who you are from the inside out, and it is the totality of who you are. That's the way the Bible represents that, and we'll walk through that again this morning as we review a little bit um, when we all come back together. But the whole point is, is that you need to become a man now who, um, in Christ, is shepherding your heart, um, other ways you could refer to it, counseling your heart, leading your heart, guiding your heart to the Word of God in order to meet with the God of the Word, to meet with Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll talk today about not settling for something less than what God intends through His Word. Um, God did not set his word up as an end. It is a means to an end. And um, we'll talk some more about that. But you shepherd your heart to the word of God because you want the end for which the Bible exists. The end of the Bible, the goal of the Bible is Jesus Christ, to reveal him, uh, to reveal God. We need to come back to the fact that the Bible is revelation, first and foremost. It reveals a being reveals God. We can easily forget that and we can just think of it as having a, being an instruction manual for living. Uh, do not settle for that. Will it instruct you on how to live? Absolutely. But you are thinking of uh, two small thoughts of scripture if all you think of is that it's there to instruct you like your Blu-ray manual instructs you how to use your Blu-ray. Okay. Uh, so you need to become a man that will shepherd your heart to come near to the Word of God in order to meet with the God of the Word. Your wife can't do that for you. Your kids won't do it for you. Your parents won't do it for you. Your elders won't do it for you. You have to do it for you. Okay? And that becomes really the, that's, that becomes the spring of everything. Uh, Proverbs talks about that. The heart is the wellspring of life. And uh, that's why we have the women, the, their version of this is called wellspring. Um, Everything flows out of this. If you have this, and if you are this kind of a man where you're coming to meet with God in his word, um, you are then ready for anything else that could happen after that. You are prepared. You are ready to step out in fullness of God, fullness of the spirit of God, fullness of the word of God, Colossians 3. Um, And that leads you into the next sphere of of influence or the first sphere of influence beyond yourself that you need to be disciplined in and that is the home that's discipline number two now you step into the lives of those that you live with and you seek to bring impact to their lives um, gospel impact scriptural impact truth you want to impact them with the truth of the word of god but primarily as a man who loves jesus 
A man who loves God. Not just a man who's got all... You're not, you're not, it's not that you're the Bible answer man in your home. I hope you can answer uh, questions and, and that, that stump your family and roommates and stuff like that. That's great. But you need to be a man who has an aroma of Jesus Christ on you. That you are... You've been, you've been meeting with God and you are stepping into your home and your people you live with need to sense that my dad is a man of God. My dad loves Jesus Christ. Your wife needs to be able to say that about you. Your roommates need to say, you know, I've never had a roommate like this guy before. Your guests in your home need to step into your home and have a sense that, that this is a man who's about someone uncommon, Jesus Christ. Okay? You make that impact first. Don't play leapfrog over your heart. Don't play leapfrog over your home. If you become that kind of a man who is shepherding your heart and you're shepherding your home, I'll tell you what, you are ready to step into the lives of anybody outside your home and you can do it with integrity. You can do it with a a sense of blamelessness uh, where there's no reproach that anybody can uh, stick on you because you've played leapfrog. Uh, And that takes us to discipline three, the ministry um, as an elder, and speaking for the elders on this, I can tell you that, that if, if a man is shepherding his heart, and if a man is taking care of those in his home, um, we want you talking to everybody and anybody in the church. You must care for people in the church. You are prepared to care for people in the church. Um, you are prepared to step into people's lives outside of the church. You are ready for evangelism. Um, you are ready for edification in the body. You're ready for evangelism in the body for those who are coming who are not yet in Christ. Uh, you are ready for those things, and you are ready to step into their lives primarily with a concern that they would know the Jesus of the Bible, that they would know what you know, that their heart must come into contact with God, with Jesus Christ through the Word of God. That's what you labor for in ministry. Now, we also want to go even beyond that with Discipline 4, and we want to talk about the qualifications uh, that are in the Bible. Primarily in Build, we're aiming at the qualifications for deacons. Um, we want you to set those character qualifications, those, uh, some of the, there's some ability in there as well to be able to um, hold fast um, to uh, the faith, hold fast to the content of truth and the gospel. Um, we want you to set those qualifications and abilities up in front of you and be prayerful about them and say, God, would you want to make me into this qualified man? Because we're looking for men in the church to be able to lead ministries who are qualified uh, in character, who are above reproach. And um, that strengthens the church. And this is where build becomes something different than just a men's group. See, because everything that we're thinking about what we're trying to do has to make impact on the local church because that is Jesus' bride. And that is what God is working through in this world. So you just being a man of God isn't enough. You being a man of God so that the church can be everything God wants the church to be, now we're starting to hit on everything that your Bible's talking about, okay? This church must be strong. Um, This church can't be strong without men being godly men, okay? So you're focusing on on setting those qualifications in front of yourself. We'll jump into those towards um, around December, January, I think. Um, Fifth discipline is called the hermeneutic. Um, we're trying to model that for you every Sunday when we're in the pulpit. We're trying to model that for you when we deal with Scripture here, whether we're doing a, 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 like a biblical survey 
uh, like we've been doing, like we did last week and like we'll do again. You'll find that we'll start from the left side of our Bibles and we'll move towards the right. We want to read it forward. We don't want to read back words. We don't want to take later truth that has come with greater revelation and push it all back into prior verses that do not contain those. We want to let God unfold his scripture progressively, which requires you to hermeneutically interpret God's word progressively. Okay? If God makes you be patient in waiting for the seed of the woman to come, then don't try to interpret the Old Testament in a way that puts the seed there before he's come. Just be patient and keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. Uh, we'll talk about that towards the end of the year. And we inter- in- intentionally put hermeneutics at the end of the year because we first want to focus on you being a man of God. You put hermeneutics into the hands of a man who's a godly man, who's not playing leapfrog over his heart, who's not playing leapfrog over his family, who's caring for people, who's aiming to be a qualified man. You put hermeneutics in that man's hands, and it's going to be exciting to watch what happens when he opens the word of God with people. But if you start putting tools like that in a man and you haven't really been concerned about his heart, does he really love God? Does he want to meet with the Lord? Um, that, that could be a dangerous thing. And so we're trying to avoid that if possible. Last discipline is discipline six on the vision and the purpose of this church. Uh, we kind of have a, have a two-pronged um, view of what this church is about. We have a vision. We have something we want to set in front of us in terms of we want to put our sights on it. We want our vision on it. And it's the, the glory of God in the cross of Jesus um, in a transformed life that the Holy Spirit makes. It's Trinitarian. So we're trying to set that up in front of us. So we want you to be aware of the glory of God in the cross of Christ and in a transformed life that the Spirit brings. And then that moves us to a purpose and a very specific purpose, a gospel purpose in Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't live in Abraham's day. We don't live in David's day. Um, we don't even live pre-Pentecost in the Gospels day. We live in Pentecost till Christ comes back day, the church. And so we have a gospel mission, a gospel purpose that has been given to us by Jesus Christ, and we need to carry that out. We summarize that with three key things that Jesus primarily did with his disciples that he uh, confirms on with his apostles in the New Testament later. We need to be build, uh, drawing one another in with the gospel, building each other up in the gospel, and sending ourselves out in the gospel. Okay? And the reason we have that one at the end is because uh, you're not just at any church. You're at this church. You're at Grace Bible Church. This is your home. You need to know what it, this church's vision and purpose is and how it guides us. Okay? So that's what we're calling you to unify with us on, those six disciplines. We want to see men in our church... Um, let me back up, let me rabbit trail for a second. All the churches that I've been into prior, um, I think, uh, didn't have a unique opportunity that God at least gave us here. Um, we had the opportunity here because things had been, uh, had been built up in many ways and then just exploded. And there were just pieces everywhere. Um, we had an opportunity to start from the, kind of the ground up again. And say, how do we want to go after training people and building people up in the gospel? And what we decided we wanted to do is across the board from young to old, from men to women, we wanted them to all be thinking about the same thing. Uh, my experience, and this might be your experience in other churches, that if you um, were involved in student ministries 
here's what I did in student ministries as a youth pastor for, for 10 years. I came up with my own philosophy of ministry within my ministry. And I taught that to the kids. I taught that to my volunteer staff that worked with me. And that's what it was. And it wasn't exactly the same thing that they heard from the church. It, it, was a, it was close because if you're studying your Bible and you want to think about what gospel ministry is, hopefully you're going to be using the same book and you're going to be close, right? But you're not going to express it exactly the same way. And so what I set out for the philosophy of ministry for the students at churches I was in the past, um, the children's ministry pastor didn't have exactly the same thing. And so if you served in children's ministry for a long time, and then you were going to move over to student ministries and serve. Well, then you kind of had to, then you started hearing something a little different. And, and it, it wasn't that like one was right and the other is wrong, but it just wasn't cohesive. Well, what we had an opportunity to do here is say, you know what? It doesn't matter where you are at. Here's what we think about what biblical leadership should look like. It's a person who shepherds his or her heart. It's a person who's not playing leapfrog over their home. And it's a person who's concerned to step into the lives of uh, and have ministry that's gospel-centered. Um, so guess what? You, you get into sixth grade, guess what we're teaching the kids in student ministries? You shepherd your heart. You uh, don't play leapfrog over your home. And you step into the lives of people with, with the gospel. And we're preaching the gospel to them because we don't know if they're saved, um, many of them. So we preach the gospel all the time in the center of all that. You be, grow up, become a man, one of, what are you going to hear? The exact same thing. If you're a woman and you're going to be in Wellspring, guess what you're hearing? The exact same thing. Um, so we're trying to say that there's, there's really one primary thing that we want all leaders in the church of ministries to gather around. It's this one thing that we're talking about. It's the heart. It's the home. It's ministry uh, with the gospel. Um, that's a unique opportunity. So that no matter where you go in the church, you, whichever corner, whichever section of ministry you're in, you're going to hopefully, Lord willing, be brushing up against others who are thinking the same thing you are, focusing on the same thing you are, even within your home, um, from your young ones all the way up to you, you're going to be hearing and thinking the same things. Um, that's a unique opportunity that doesn't come along, except when you're at the beginning. Otherwise, you have to tear things apart, kind of, and start over, and that's hard in ministries. Uh, so we're grateful for what God actually allowed to happen to us, led us through and into so that we could have um, what we do have today. In the heart section, I want you to grab one of the resources. So you'll need to go to the back of the heart section. And um, I want you to look at the top of the page. It's going to say D1, the heart, the 856 occurrences of heart in the New American Standard. Okay, so uh, in your heart section of your notebook, and then what it does is it lists um, all of the books of the Bible that contain the word heart in it in the New American Standard Version. Now, this is not every usage of the word heart from uh, the Old Testament. For instance, I just came across a, a verse this morning that actually translates, the NAS translates the heart with the word mind. And so uh, it won't, it's not every single occurrence of the Old Testament word lab for heart, um, but it's close. And I just want you to think about this with me. Here's one of the reasons why we want you to read through the Bible in a year. If, if you read, and I'm going to kind of pick on, uh, I won't pick on. Christians tend to read their top five favorite books. 
And I, I just pick five because sometimes it's three, sometimes it's seven, it, it, but five. And they read those same five books over and over and over because they have memories associated with it that, you know, I did the study through James once and it just changed my life. So I just like to come back to James. And James is just so practical. And so I read James. Um, but let me pick five books. Let's say you read John. The Gospel of John uh, will mention the heart six times. Let's say you reach, uh, read Romans. You've got to read Romans, right? Always need to read Romans. Romans over and over. Romans mentions the heart 15 times because that's 21 total. Ephesians, Ephesians is good. It mentions nine. What is that? We're up to 30 times as it's mentioned the heart. And then let's say you just love the pastoral epistles. First, second Timothy and Titus. A uh, total of two times. Titus doesn't even mention the heart. Uh, so now you're up to 32. And Hebrews. We'll pick Hebrews this time. Hebrews. I love the book of Hebrews. mentions the heart 11 times for a total of 43 direct mentions of the heart. If you read through those five books the rest of your life, you'd be okay. I'm not saying that that's, you know, I'm not trying to poo-poo reading the same five books. Yes, I am. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. But now, I want you to look at the Old Testament. Look at Proverbs. How many times has Proverbs mentioned the heart? 69 times. One book. Psalms. 126 times the heart is mentioned. God wants to address you on the heart in Proverbs, in Psalms, that many times. Second Chronicles, 31 times. That book that has a lot of genealogies in it. That you can read and just go, man, I look, it mentions the heart 31 times. God wants to address your heart specifically 31 times in that book. Deuteronomy, 45. Exodus, 33 times. Jeremiah, 48 times. If you don't read the Old Testament, what are you missing? A lot. God wants to address your heart in Scripture. He wants to mention it specifically that many times. Um, You've got to read through the Bible every year um, and do the best you can. It's not a, it's not a contest. It's not a, it's not a race to see who can do it first. Uh, it's, a, it's a lifetime process of reading through the Old Testament so that over and over every year God can speak directly to your heart and let you know what he's trying to reveal about your heart, okay? All right. Let's uh, take your um, handouts for today. We're going to continue and talk about the heart, uh, do a, a, a little bit of review from last week, and then just a, a tiny bit more given to you as a... Um, in biblical survey kind of form, uh, two points to add. So let's talk about first an illustration. I, I'm all about illustrations. I think it's important for me. I, I think uh, in visual kinds of ways, I try to visualize principles and, 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 and points. And so this is, a, this is an illustration that came to my mind a couple years ago in regards to what Discipline One is really all about. Let me give it to you this way. If, if you were lost in the desert, okay, and now your water is all gone, you're, you're in real trouble. If you're in a really remote area and uh, you don't have any water, and uh, you're, you're in big trouble. It's just it's inevitable that something really bad is going to happen to you. But, but let's say in that situation that you actually have um, a satellite phone. A satellite phone. That changes everything. That changes everything, right? Um, your one focus, your one goal, your one end is to be rescued, is to be delivered, right? That satellite phone 
becomes a major piece of that rescue. It is the one means to your one end. Your satellite phone is not your rescue. It is not your end. It is the means to your end. Well, just because a satellite phone is a means does not mean that you treat it shabbily. Right? You're not just going to be careless and set it down somewhere and start walking off and go, oh man, where's that phone? I can't even find my path. Where was I? You're going to guard that thing. You're going to hang on to that thing. So there's two extremes that you kind of have to avoid when you think about stuff like that. One extreme is your satellite phone is not the end. You don't sit there in the desert and analyze all of the different buttons and what they do and all the features on it. You don't sit there and and fixate on the phone like it's the end. Because it's not. And on the other side, the fact that it's only a means doesn't mean that you neglect the phone or that you abuse the phone. Now, it's the means to your rescue that will lead you. Because you see it as the means to your rescue, it'll actually lead you to treat the phone carefully. Okay? To fixate on the phone without achieving your goal of being rescued is stupid. It'll kill you. To fixate on your phone without thinking about it, I need to use this to to get rescued, that'll kill you. Right? Discipline one is all about the heart that is prone to wander, right? Getting nearer to its rescuer. Your heart coming into contact with God in a saving way, obviously, first and foremost, and then in fellowship on a daily basis. Your heart must be in fellowship with God. Now, discipline one um, is about how your how the word of God and your heart have to come into a full contact sport with one another. Okay? Um, Discipline one is about you understanding God's precious word rightly. The Bible is not the end. The Bible is not the goal. The Bible is an exalted means to the end who is God. Okay? To interact, let's talk about the two extremes. To interact with the word of God... To fixate on the word of God, but not be concerned about the end, who is God. Makes about as much sense as fixating on a satellite phone in the desert, but not calling your rescuer. That'll kill you. Kill you spiritually. The other extreme would be to think, well, the word's just an end. You know, the word's not God. So I'm not going to, you know, I don't need to worry. It's it's not God. I I want God, but this is just a means to God. So you treat it shabbily, you neglect it. That's that's foolish. In my past, um, I was around men who spoke all of the time about the word. The word. The word. And I was just like them. I was discipled by them. They loved the word of God, but they, I I think they loved it in a, in a, in, a, in a small way. They were very concerned um, that as they looked around them in the city that we lived in, just churches weren't concerned about the word of God. They weren't preaching the word of God anymore. 
they were tickling ears with nice stories and things like that. And so they were all about the word. We need to come back to the word. And it was just the, the word, the word, the word. And I know what it did in my own heart was that it, I found myself focusing on it as an end. And I continued on that path for several years, even went through seminary with much of that still intact, got into pastoral ministry out of seminary, and about three years into it, had somebody point out to me that I was actually treating the word of God like it was the end, and I was missing the end, actually. Jesus. I wasn't in gross sin in my life. I, my, my marriage was, was, was doing well. My ministry was prospering because we had the word out in front. But personally, I'm not sure I was meeting with God. Really trying to grow in, in my relationship with him, honor him, enjoy him, love him, express my need for him, my desire for him. So that's my path. That's where I come from. Now, God's intent for his word is that it is most honored. God's word is most honored when it is seen as the great means that he breathed it out to be. God did not breathe out his word to be an end. He breathed it out to be a means. And it is most exalted by us when we acknowledge that and treat it as such. Okay? God intends his word to be a means to put your heart in contact with something greater than the word, which is Jesus Christ. Okay? You cannot improve on that design for God's word. Now, that kind of talk might make you a little nervous because you might have more of an influence of a past like I had. Where that, make, that can make you all of a sudden wonder, well, then are you going to put the word in a lesser place? No, not when you rightly understand what it is as a means. It's going to make you protect it. It's going to make you watch out over it. It's going to make you keep it close to you all the time like you would a satellite phone in the desert. It's not going to make you treat it shabbily if you understand it to be the means that God made it to be. So, that means that we don't want to talk about the Bible in such a way where it sounds like we're happy if we get the Bible, but we don't get God. We never want to talk about the Bible in such a way that we would give the impression that we're happy that we had the Bible, but we didn't get God. Or we're not sure if we got God. We want to make sure that when we're interacting with the Bible, that we are happy because we got God through the Bible. Okay? We come to the Word of God to meet with the God of the Word. And the other extreme isn't any better. Some of you might have a, your experience might actually be the opposite of mine in that um, um, maybe your past was just an excessive talk about nearness to God and experiencing God and that kind of language, you know, knowing God, loving God, with, with maybe some de-emphasis on the word. The word wasn't central to all of that talk. Do you understand? And the point for you is to be able to discern yourself, to be able to know which one you're more like. What are you wired more like? Do you fall more on the side where you're going to read your Bible and you might be content to, in reading it, just get the key points that you really needed to get theologically and walk away, and that maybe you didn't really like worship God in it? Or are you the person that's more, I just, 
want to, I just enjoy and want to experience God in, in, in greater ways. And, and if the Bible's a part of that, sometimes I'm okay with that, you know. You know, you need to know which one you're more like because discipline one in build seeks to correct both of those. Discipline one wants to put a heavy emphasis on the word of God for those who want an experience with God. But listen, the, the, the only experience that you're going to get from God that is going to matter most of anything is going to be what you interact with him on concerning his word and when he reveals himself. So it's going to put a heavy emphasis on the word. And for those of us who might be more on the word side, we can't be satisfied to just come to the word only. We come to it because we need God. We want God. We desire God. We're hungry for God. Do you guys understand? So that's what I want you to understand in regards to uh, the heart. Uh, that's the heart behind discipline one, the heart. Now let's review a little bit, okay? And again, I'll just give you the, the ground rules again. If you guys have any questions, comments, you want to raise your hand, you can do that at any time, okay? Um, let's review from last time a little bit. What is the heart? Let me give you just a couple of key things. The most important thing is the heart is not a piece of you. It is not part of you. It is you. It's the inner you. It's the inner man. It's the inner person of the heart. Um, that's what First Peter chapter 3, verse 4 says. The inner person of the heart in talking about um, the wife. Uh, it's a comprehensive term for the, your personality as a whole, who you are. Um, it's the place where God meets you as judge and savior and deliverer. Um, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it, the idea is the same. The New Testament just builds on it. It's the inner life in contrast to the external appearance. Paul will make lots of contrasts between merely external things, 2 Corinthians 5, compared to the, the inner person of the heart. It's simply you. It's the place, for lack of a better word, I don't know if place, it's, it's the place where God addresses you. Okay? Um, it's the place where you are seen to be responsible to God. And therefore, that is the place where he begins his work of renewal, of, of salvation, conversion. It's the place where he deals with you first. Conversion takes place in the heart, so conversion takes place for all of you. All of you is converted. Um, it's just another way of referring to who you are in totality. Okay? Um, so what can be said of the human heart from Scripture? Last time we talked about this. Um, if you want to just listen, you can. Uh, remember we talked about how the heart fails me? In Psalm 40, we talked about how the heart is beyond man's cleansing. In Proverbs 20, the heart is the source of man's defilement. Matthew 15, and it's a foolish heart that invites greater spiritual darkness. Romans 1, that's what can be said of the human heart. It fails me, it's beyond cleansing, it's the source of my defilement, and it's foolish and plunges me into greater spiritual darkness. Is the heart aware of that about itself? Um, the answer to that is a, re a resounding no from Scripture. The heart is easily deceived, even when it's surrounded by blessing. We're going to see that again this morning. Put, put the heart in, in, a, in a place of blessing, even from God, blessing from God, and the heart will forget God. The heart is an excellent deceiver. Jeremiah 17 is at the top of the list. There's nothing more deceitful than the human heart. 
The heart can even then be deceived by others, Romans 16. We can deceive our own hearts, James 1. So look, deception is everywhere when you talk about the heart. How can the heart be alert to its devastated condition when it's surrounded and filled with such deception? Third point, what is the highest calling of the human heart? This is the crazy maker. What's the highest calling of the human heart? God says, love me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we, remember, keep keep our definition. What is the heart? It's all of you. It's not a piece of you. So it's not a piece of the old man. It is the old man. Your heart now is different if you are in Christ. It's called the new man. So it's not a piece of the new man. And we're going to talk about this. And I've got an insert. We're going to do that again this year. I'll try to do that sooner or later. So it's not like a piece of you... Is still lingering on into the piece of the new you. You are a completely different creature than you were before. Uh, summary difference between the old man and the new man, the old creation, the new creation. Old creation, unmixed condition. Unmixed. Only thoroughly sin. Total depravity. Right? There. New condition, new man, new heart, mixed condition. Uh, Indwelling sin, still there. But you're not a slave to sin anymore. Old man condition, slave to sin. That heart, the old man, a slave to sin. New, New creation, not a slave to sin anymore. Still influenced by sin. Still will succumb to sin, but declared righteous? made new, progressively being sanctified now, can say no to sin now, never could say no to sin before, can say yes to obedience now. These are two entirely different inner yous that exist. And that's why the Bible can say, the old man is dead, was crucified with Christ. That condition no longer lives in you because you are a mixed condition now. Okay, So the inner you of this new condition has some similarities to the inner you that used to be this, but it is not anywhere near the same thing. The old things have passed away. That's dead. It's gone. That is not you if you were in Christ. But for whatever reason, God decided we're going to have this period of time called life where you are not going to be glorified yet. Because you're going to get another new you at glorification, where and that one will be an unmixed condition also, except no more sin, only holiness, only righteousness, only obedience. And God decided it is going to glorify me to have you live in this period where you fight. You could not fight before. You, you only fought against me before. Now you fight with me against your sin, and that glorifies me. Depend on me. That's a new man. That's a new heart that is given. It's not glorification yet. If I'd been writing the story, I would have gone from unmixed to unmixed, and we'll just skip this whole part. 
But God doesn't do that. God's a little smarter and wiser than me. We'll talk more about that. Um, The highest calling of the human heart in that condition, lost condition, God says, love me with everything your inner man is. Does God see this predicament? Yeah, he not only sees it, but he says, "Um, I'm going to weigh your hearts. I'm going to search your hearts. I'm going to test your hearts. I'm going to do all of that so I can pay you back. Well, that's kind of a dead end, isn't it? So what is the greatest need then of the human heart? We talked about it in two parts. Um, God, it's one's from the human side and one's from the divine side. The human side, God says, um, do something about that heart. Do something about that inner you that you are. He used words and language like circumcise yourselves. Wash your hearts. He said, make a new heart. Tear your heart and not your garments. Joel 2, remember? Purify your heart. James 4. And the question that we should ask as we read that, knowing what we are, is how can I do that with a heart that's in this condition? And what God is saying through that kind of language to us is that you are culpable. You're responsible for what you are in your total lost, unmixed condition. You are responsible. The good news is that simultaneous to that command to do something about your own heart, God says that he is actually the one who's going to do it. So that was the second part. This is the divine side. God promises to do for man what man can't do for his own heart, right? The Lord will circumcise the heart. The old covenant that Israel was under highlighted the need for a new heart, but it never provided within it the means to get it. And so it would make an Old Testament, Old Covenant saint like David cry out to God and say, create in me a clean heart. You do it for me. God said that he would give them a new heart and a new covenant. And Jesus certainly inaugurated that new covenant ministry in his blood at his death on the cross. And at Pentecost, you begin to see the hearts being pierced and God cleansing the heart by faith, even the Gentiles. In Acts 15. So man is called to do something about the condition of his heart, which puts the accent on man's responsibility and man's culpability. And the way that that heart actually then changes is that man pleads to God and says, unable, I can't. Will you do it for me? And God says, I'll circumcise it. I'll cleanse it. I'll give you a new one. And he does. He does for the sinner what the sinner could never do for himself. And so then in this condition that we are in, that's a mixed condition that sometimes our hearts, will, our inner man will still deceive us because it's mixed. God gives to us something that's very precious and helpful. He gives us his word. Hebrews 4.12 It can judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, of the inner man. Listen, your new man in Christ, this new creation, it needs the word of God. You need to be able to discern what it's thinking. It can think really good thoughts sometimes. And other times completely deceive you. That's the new you. Okay? You're not the glorified you yet. The glorified you, uh, no man will have to teach 
one another or say, know the Lord, because they will know the Lord. Okay? All right, so now what I want to do is I want to add two more descriptions for you. These are kind of random. This is on your second page probably. I don't know. My, my page numbers aren't the same. That was all review. I want to add two more observations from Scripture concerning the heart. Um, so number one, the description of the heart at the beginning of the Bible storyline. Let's go back to Genesis 6. Genesis 6 is right before the flood. Genesis 6 is God describing for us the condition of man just prior to the flood. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Well, can you spell that out for me a little bit more? In in what ways was the wickedness of man great on the earth? In this way, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. At the core of who God was, he was sorry. And, verse 7, the Lord said, I'll blot out man whom I created on the face of the land, from the face of the land, from man to animals. I'm just going to destroy everything. Here's the reason for the flood. Man's heart. Man's heart. The wickedness of the human heart. It's page 8 on my Bible. I don't know what page it is on yours. By page 8, everything is ruined. And God says, I'm going to destroy it all, except for this one family. And do you notice the, if, if your wife ever came to you and said, every single time you only, blah, 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 continually, you'd be like, give me a break. You know it's not every time that I do that. I only do that, and it's not continually, right? We try to tone each other down with that kind of language when we hear it in our, I do it with my kids, You never... That's not true. Stop right there. Right? This is one of those instances where you can't do that to God. Because it always is this way and was this way. And so this is the reason why the flood comes. Right? Now, let's go to the end of the flood. Genesis 8, verse 20. Watch this. You're going to see this, uh, chapter 6, verses 5 to 6, reiterated. Verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. This is after he came out of the ark. And he took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So God somewhere, sometime, had revealed sacrifice was important. Mosaic Law did not invent sacrifice. God did before that. And so he's sacrificing. A substitute needed to be in the place. The Lord smelled, verse 21, the, the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on the account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So in one sense, it's just a reiteration of, of Genesis 6. But here's what's terrifying. Did the, did the flood, did judgment fix the problem? No. Did God's deliverance of Noah fix the problem? No, just read a little bit further and Noah's going to reveal that he still has a heart problem. So what is God expecting 
the hearts of man to be like once Noah and the fa- his family repopulate the earth. It's just going to be more of the same what happened before. I just won't destroy it by water. You know what this makes you do at this point? This makes you say, um, I have to keep reading, you know, because there's got to be a better judgment that's going to come that's going to take care of this heart problem. And there's got to be a better deliverance that's got to come that's going to take care of this heart problem. Have to keep reading. So that's the description of the heart at the beginning of the Bible storyline. It's not a it's not a good description. That sets the tone for the Bible. And that needs to make you alert to be watching for what's coming next in the Bible. Let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about um, the danger that pride exposes the heart to. Um, I want you to go to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. We're really drilled down on verse 20. This is... um, Moses' instruction for the people concerning a king someday, you know, they're still in the wilderness. They haven't made it over to the promised land, but there will be a king someday. Uh, Let's start at verse... hmm, uh, Let's start at verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You know, just read 1 Samuel and that's exactly what happens. You shall surely set a king over you, um, uh, over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor will he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He will do this. He's going to sit on his throne and he's going to write the law out while the Levitical priests watch. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, so that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. All right, so God here is very concerned about the leader of Israel. Uh, Number one, wives will take this man's heart and lead it away. His inner man will be led away. Verse 20, the word of God is actually given to the king. The king is supposed to write it out. And one of the reasons that it's given to him is so that he will not lift up his heart above his countrymen. What does that mean? So that he won't become arrogant and think more highly of himself than he ought to in comparison to his his fellow countrymen. The word of God was given so that it would level him. The word of God is the great leveler. The king needed that, so that he would not think more highly of himself than he should. You know, this is a timeless principle. Leaders are tempted to make themselves exempt 
from the standard that everybody else abides by. And, and the king writing out the commands would be a way in God's intentions so that the king would not play leapfrog over himself and think, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have to be bound to these like the rest of you do. How about Psalm 101? So, so what, what, what can we say about that? How would we summarize that? Look, if you, if you don't bring the word of God near to your heart, let's talk about it negatively. Don't bring the word of God near to your heart. What's your heart inclined to do? You'll raise yourself up to a place of, of arrogance. Bring the word of God near to your heart and at least you have a, the opportunity to be leveled. Every day you and I need to be leveled. Psalm 101, verse, verses 1 to 5, we'll actually take a look at. I will sing of loving kindness and justice, David says. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? Do you see that? What does he want? What does he want? Let me change the question. Who does he want? He wants God. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. He's not playing leapfrog over his home. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. David is not claiming to be perfect. David is expressing his desire to be holy, that he's striving to be holy. He's striving to be a man of integrity and he's able to say, I'm being a man of integrity at this point. But David is resolute about a perverse heart finding no lodging place in his life, right? And in verse 5, as king, as the one who's supposed to oversee the country and oversee the old covenant and being uh, the Mosaic Covenant being carried out among the people and uh, one who is uh, concerned about the Abrahamic Covenant promises being fulfilled and fleshed out in his people. Uh, he's the one who's overseeing the advancement of all of that. What's going to hinder Israel? An arrogant heart. And so what he is all about as a king over this special people, it has no room for an arrogant heart. And an arrogant heart isn't going to fit into anything that God's doing. In Israel. Go to the next book of your Bible. Go to Proverbs. Yeah. Yeah. In verse, in my margin, it says, or silence, him I will silence. Um, David as king um, had the authority to enforce the law, Mosaic law. Um, and Mosaic law said in Leviticus 19, to, uh, to love your neighbor. And um, to slander your neighbor, he's, he'll carry out 
justice. Um, he's going to do that. He had the right to. He could do that. And um, if he believed that arrogance was going to be detrimental to his people, he could act in a way that would protect his people. Uh, that's not us, obviously. So when you read this, um, you don't go around saying, you know, whoever slanders his neighbor, I'm going to destroy. <laughs> yeah. Please do not, please do not apply this passage in that way. You, to understand this passage, need to keep reading it forward. You need to keep reading your Bible forward because more revelation has come, and you see there's another son of David who has come, and upon himself he took the slandering of neighbor himself, and God destroyed it on him for you. See, so, uh, yeah, we, we, we read it, and, and it means what it means for David. It does, and we can't miss that. That's exactly what it means. As king, he did what he did. Um, but we have to keep reading and, and recognize that more has come. And the greater son of David calls you and I maybe to something a little different. And so we follow what the greater son of David has set out for us. Um, Proverbs 16, verse 5. It's a good question. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Wow. Can it be said any stronger than that? God's response to the proud in heart is just right there for you to see. His, his punishment is not questionable. It's not iffy. It's not uncertain. He says, assuredly, you can count on this. He will not be unpunished. Now, how, how do Proverbs work? Proverbs are, are um, truths that are generally true. Let me give you a modern day proverb, perhaps. Something like this. The child who does not look both ways gets hit by a car, but the child who does lives long. That's generally true. It's not a lie to say that. Even though there may be some kids who never look both ways and never get hit. And some kids who look both ways and do get hit. It's still true. This is a, a truth. This is the way Proverbs works. It, it's a general truth that exists. You can count on this happening. Life tends to fall to this. There are a lot of arrogant people who um, look like they don't get punished. But we know that assuredly they all do, eventually. Um, and here's what's amazing. The Son of God becomes the abomination, my abomination, because of my arrogance. He, he was punished for your arrogance, mine, at the cross. Um, God didn't change his mind about arrogance and how he feels about it. He, he, as, as, as strongly as he states it here, that's what, that was his disposition towards his son at the cross, so that when his son would even cry out, where are you? Is because of, of things like this. Christ was the abomination 
that my arrogance was to God. How about Proverbs 18, verse 12? Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, arrogant, prideful. But humility goes before honor. Okay, so here's here's what it is. If you can think of like a, a picture, here's destruction, a, a man just ruined. Now here's his steps. Before that is arrogance. So arrogance is over here in time before, and he goes on and here's ruin. Now the other part of the Hebrew poetry is 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 the opposite of that. Before, here's honor. A man being honored, being an honorable man. Go before that, and before that, you'll, you'll find humility. So trace his footsteps forward, and you're going to see him arrive at a place of honor. So, if you come upon a man who is destroyed, he's laying there in the ruins of his life, what do you know happened before this? That he was arrogant. That arrogance was there. The same when a man is honored. Truly honored as the Bible would say a man is honored. What can you point to and know happened before? He was a humble man. What if now in your life, what if now in your life you see arrogance? What can you expect if you don't address it with the gospel? What is coming? Destruction. Humiliation. So, they're linked. Listen, guys, pride will ruin you. It'll ruin me. It'll ruin us. Let's go to Hosea, chapter 13. Right after Daniel, right? So find Daniel and move one to the right. Hosea 13. Verse 4 of Hosea 13. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. And you were not to know any God except me. For there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. So, so once they got to the land, and they had their pasture... They became satisfied. And being satisfied, watch this, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me, God says. This, passages like this should make us be very afraid of even blessing that comes from God. Not because it is bad in and of itself, but because of this condition we're still in, the influence of sin on us, we still have to battle with, with arrogance. So when things are going well and the blessing is there, that is especially a good time to be on the alert for arrogance or pride. Because if pride sets in, you don't need God. Because you're very convinced about your own abilities. You're, you're convinced about your own resources. You're, you're persuaded that you've got things under control. This is good. And you forget God.
And by the way, this side of heaven, you'll never have a day, you'll never have a season where you won't have to watch your heart for pride. There won't be a day where you won't have to. Um, let's go to the New Testament. You notice what we're doing? We're going from left to right again. So let's go to James chapter 3. James 3, verse 13. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Listen, look, look back in verse um, 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, then what? Do not be arrogant. Listen, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in the heart positions you, positions a man to be arrogant. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition positions a man to be arrogant and even lie against the truth. It positions man for earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. Now, this is, what, is, what is so helpful about this is this, here the Word of God shows you how one sin easily is connected and partnered with another sin. Where did this pride come from? Something within the heart. What? Other sin. Bitter jealousy. Selfish ambition, unchecked, will lead to arrogance. So this, here's what's comforting about this. Here's how fighting one sin by the grace of God in the gospel might actually end up defeating more than one sin at a time. If you have the opportunity to knock down one sin and in so doing it would set off a chain reaction of dominoes that might knock some others down, versus just knocking one down at a time? Which would you choose? If you can eradicate and watch in your life and and do this by the power of of God in the gospel, rehearsing the promises to you of God in the gospel that you're not a slave to sin anymore, that you have been equipped in this new man to say no to sin uh, through bringing along the help of others, by memorizing scripture, by all the power of God that comes in the gospel, if you were able to Crush selfish ambition in your life. Guess what else is going to become very anemic in your life? Pride. So passages like this are are so helpful. So you look for a place where there might be bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. You, You look for a place where you might have a party spirit. You know, we are a Paul and we are a Paulos. And then somebody got really smart and said, we're of Jesus. I, that's the group I would have wanted to be in. Because you just trumped everybody. Now all of a sudden the Paul people look really silly. Because they're not the Jesus people. Anyway. 
You watch for where there's party spirit, and you can be very sure that arrogance is, is very close by. Okay? So we have to fight these things in the heart. Listen, your heart and pride, they really like to hang out together. The inner man and pride, uh, until glory, until glorification, it's going to be this way. You'll have to keep fighting it. So you need to be aware of what the Bible says about pride in your heart. Let me give you some summary points to consider. What do we, in regards to the Genesis passages we looked at, a better judgment on the heart needs to come and has come at the cross. That judgment at the cross caused old things to pass away. This is what we talked about last Sunday, that, look, the historical reality of Jesus dying on the cross is huge. But until your life is united with Christ crucified, that historical event will not change you. God must take your life and unite your life to Christ crucified. And when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, he means it's not this old man, me, that lives. But Christ lives in me. That's a new mixed condition where Christ lives in me. We needed a better judgment and it has come. We needed a better deliverance and it has come. Um, Let's talk about the pride aspect. The call from God's word to you guys, to me, is that we do not lift up our hearts in arrogance or pride, right? The word of God is the great leveler. That's, we need that leveling every day from God's word. What else can we take away from this? Look, an arrogant heart had no room under David's reign of his people, Israel, and their calling. How much more so is there no room under the greater son of David and his people, the church, in our calling? Arrogance was bad then. Arrogance is bad now. It needs to be eradicated. What else can we take away from this? Listen, shepherd your heart frequently back to God's word to see God's hatred for arrogance. Remember he said it's an abomination to Yahweh? Listen, guys, the more that you keep that truth in front of yourself, um, at least then what you're going to have to do if you're going to choose to be arrogant is say, I am going to pick up this abomination to the Lord and use it. You should have to step through that hoop every time to be aware of that. Because you might actually go, on second thought, I'm going to put that back. Okay? So shepherd your heart with with the, the grossness of sin, God's hatred for arrogance. Have you noticed um, how easy it is to see another man's arrogance but not see your own? So, I mean, that is the effect of sin in us, that it blinds us to our, what we see in us and it makes us see crystal clear in somebody else. Um, what do you do when you all of a sudden become convinced that the guy sitting across the table is just being arrogant? Um, that's a great opportunity to say, oh, Lord, do you see how concerned I am for his arrogance and I can't even see my own right now? Will you please open my eyes, Lord? Make me, make me nearsighted in regards to sin. Make me nearsighted so I can see my sin before I see my brother's. Take away that wrong view of sin that leads me to be more concerned about others than and the speck that is in my brother's eye than the log of pride protruding out of my own eye. What else can we take away from this? 
Think carefully about where pride will lead you. Right? What comes before destruction? Pride. So if you're tempted to choose pride, to pick it up and see how it will work for you, just rehearse to yourself, where is this going to lead me? What else? Beware of the dangerous pattern where there's comfort and blessing. When you get comfort and blessing, it doesn't mean that you are so much in God's favor that you'll probably never struggle with sin again. Right? It's a great opportunity at that point. It's not a great opportunity. It's an unfortunate opportunity at that point in the midst of blessing to be tempted and to forget God. And then what else can you get from this? You can get this. Look, there, there, there are connections between sins. Sins partner with each other. Sin rarely operates, one sin rarely operates on its own, unconcerned about another sin. If one sin says, hey, I got my foot in the door, it's telling that to three or four others, saying, come on, let's go. I got my foot in the door. And so if we can shut the door on the foot of that sin, we might keep some other ones out. So fight sin strategically. And you might actually find that in killing one sin by the grace of God and the gospel, the power of God, that you might actually be killing pride. Right? All right. Any questions or comments on that, guys? On the heart of pride? Any questions or, or thoughts on, on build as a whole? Uh, Something that you're not sure of? Any of you elders want to say anything? I'll point you to one other thing um, then and let you... um, We'll finish with this. In your notebook, we handed out um, two sample prayers of how the build disciplines might inform your prayer life. I want to I explain one part to you on, on the page two of it. So you have to find that document. It's at the top it says uh, an example of how the build disciplines might shape your prayerful approach to God through his word. So there's one on one side and there's one on the other. I want to take the one and, and just show you something on the back. And again, like this is just... This is just something that, that maybe if it, if it helps you to think about, oh yeah, I need to be praying like that when I'm, when I'm approaching God in His Word. And you come up with your own way of doing it, that's great. Personalize it for you. Um, down towards the bottom, there, you'll see a big blank, like in the second paragraph from the bottom. It says, I pray now at the beginning of the day for the end of my day. This is something that I began to be very... Um, bothered by over this this last summer in my life that I felt like I wasn't ending my day as well at all. Um, I wasn't ending it well with my wife. I just wasn't ending it well myself. I, I, being a, sometimes a news junkie, I'll, I'll get on my iPad and I'll, I'll check the news one more time. And lo and behold, the, the, the headlines didn't change, but I, but I saw it, though, that they didn't change. And it just... You know, stuff like that just makes me anxious. It makes me tired. So I close that up, and I, I'm the type when I put my head down, 
I'm gone. So I didn't even pray then. And so I, I began to think in the mornings, when am I when am I at my best? When am I most alert? When am I when am I at my best? For me it's it's first thing in the morning. And so I began to pray this last summer that in the in the mornings I would pray pray for the end of my day. So I pray now at the beginning of the day for the end of my day. I need your presence now throughout the day and especially at the end of this day. So I don't don't just want to draw near to God now, but I'm, I'm actually more concerned about the end of my day. And for me, the blank for me is I find that checking my email, checking the headlines, fails to protect and secure my heart and devotion to your son at the end of the day. It doesn't do any of that. What's it for you? Fill in the blank. What is it for you? ESPN? I don't, know, I don't want to tread too close to the throne room. <laughs> the altar. <laughs> okay. But whatever it is for you, identify what it is. And ask yourself the real serious question. Does, it, does this secure my heart in greater nearness to God at the end of the day? For me, rather, checking news, my email, it distracts me with unnecessary and even sinful thoughts that cause me to neglect thankfulness at the end of the day and worship of Christ at the close of the day. I must finish well today. Um, maybe that's something you guys can start to, to think about. I don't know if that's for you, but I'm, I'm not my best at night. My mind is tired. I'm not as disciplined. I'm not as alert. I can find myself slipping into attitudes and thoughts that I would never want to. But there I am. How did I get there? I have no idea. It, it just happened. No, I wasn't careful. I wasn't alert. I wasn't shepherding my heart. So, anyway, I just wanted to explain that blank to you so you guys would understand what was going on with that. And maybe you can uh, use that for yourself. Okay? All right. That is it for today. Let's pray. And let's ask God to help us as we go forward from here. Can you pray with me? Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, we are in great need of you. Great need of you. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, be powerful in our lives with your word. Father, would you please, in, in regard, we're men and we, uh, arrogance is and pride is something that um, just seems to go right along with manhood. It goes just along with being a human, but especially for men. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to not be arrogant men. And what we recognize, Lord, is that the only hope that we would have um, for not being arrogant is, is to begin at the cross, where the humble Savior took on our arrogance and bore all of it in your sight and he drank your cup dry and the implication of that for those of us who believe is that when you look at us there's nothing left in the cup you are not angry toward us anymore every expression of arrogance and pride in our lives forever crushed by your wrath on your son at the cross. God, what do we say? But that we love you and we worship you and we thank you
for acting so decisively and powerfully against our sin. And God, we we move from there in the gospel to another important part of the gospel, that is that you made us new creatures in Christ by uniting us to your son crucified and your son raised from the dead. And we find ourselves now in a mixed condition where pride still lingers on. But we remind ourselves that we, we are no longer slaves to arrogance. We've been set free from that. In fact, now we're slaves of humility. That's truly who we are. We forget who we are. We have spiritual amnesia all the time. But God, you did this in us. It's true. And there is power bound up in this truth. And so we rehearse it again to ourselves. And we pray that you might let us see and remember the the resources that are ours in the new man, that we have the word of God, that we have fellowship with one another. We have admonishments and encouragement from one another to help us say no and to repent from lingering pride and arrogance. Help us to walk gently with one another as we express arrogance to each other, knowing full well that if we have to exhort a brother or admonish a brother, that he very well may, in matter of moments, have to turn around and do that for us because pride is is that prevalent within. So help us to be gentle with each other, but truthful. Father, thank you for all that you have done for us in the gospel of your son, Jesus. Will you be with us, go with us from here and help us to step back into our families or our day, whatever it is that we are going to do um, with greater nearness to you and desire for you. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for coming. It's so good to be with you. And uh, two weeks from today, we are back on. Start on your homework sooner than later. Don't do it Friday night. Because when it asks you, how has this been going for you? You got nothing to say. All right? All right.